Hi friend, you're listening to a London Lyceum exclusive episode that is typically only available to subscribers. If you want to have access to all of our exclusive content, including Kiffin's Keep, Generally Particular, Typology by Immersion, The Hanover House, and all of our live stream content, consider joining for just $5 a month. Not only will you be getting access to all of this content and more, but you'll also be supporting and investing in an institution serious about thinking. So why not go ahead and click the link in the description now and enjoy all of the exclusive content directly to your mobile device or wherever you listen. As always, we're thinking about new ways to get you thinking, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Kiffin's Keep, an intellectual resource for the pillar and buttress of the truth, which is the church. This is a project of the London Lyceum, which is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, president of the London Lyceum. And in this very first inaugural episode of Kiffin's Keep, I'm excited to discuss the topic of what is analytic theology and is it toxic and corrosive and evil and going to corrupt all true and good theology. But before I do that, remember, go ahead and click subscribe to the channel. Click the like button as well, and go ahead and drop a comment throughout. It really means a lot to me. It encourages me that this work is not in vain and not totally useless, but you actually enjoy it and benefit from it. You're edified. So let's get to work. Uh, None of that chit chat sort of stuff that you might find in other channels. Maybe we'll chit and maybe we'll chat, but we're going to stay focused. So talking about what is analytic theology, a really nice place to start is some of the premier practitioners of analytic theology. So people like Oliver Crisp have defined it as something that will prize intellectual virtues like clarity, parsimony of expression, and argumentative rigor. I think that's a really nice definition. Another definition that sort of augments that a little bit is from McCall when he talks about it as a commitment to employ the conceptual tools of analytic philosophy. I think that's pretty relevant. So when you think analytic philosophy and using it, it, think of using things like uh, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, philosophy of action, philosophy of science in service of theology. So you can give examples like J.T. Turner using philosophy of time to help him with the theory of the resurrection, James Arcati using theory and philosophy of mind to help with mystery of the Eucharist. You can think of Adonis Vidu using philosophy of action to help with the incarnation, things like that. Uh, are how it's being used. And another definition comes from Billy Abraham. He says, analytic theology is just systematic theology attuned to the skills, resources, and virtues of analytic philosophy. And yes, I did just flip to another video because I listened to this segment. For some reason, the audio drove me nuts, and I think it would drive you nuts too. So here I am giving you a couple five minutes and we'll flip back to the old video. Anyway, another definition comes from Mike Ray. And the reason I mention him is just because His definition is the one I feel like everybody ends up going back to uh, just because he gives one of the most formal definitions in that initial introduction to analytic theology sort of volume. I don't think that was a title, uh, maybe like essays in analytic theology or something, but it was the first like branding it as analytic theology. And he gave you a couple examples. He said, I guess, necessary, sufficient sort of conditions. Uh, Analytic theology, uh, number one, it's about clarifying positions and conclusions that can be formalized and and logically manipulated in particular ways. Uh, It avoids substantive use of metaphor. It uh, also prioritizes things like precision and clarity. It uh, works with well-understood concepts uh, as much as possible. And he gives, I think he gives a a couple more other than that one, but those are the 
main ones that stood out to me. And there's a more recent definition on offer from James R. Cotty, Jordan Wessling, and Oliver Crisp in one of their volumes on analytic theology. And they give a little unique twist on the definition of it. So a lot of these definitions we've mentioned so far have really focused on things like precision, on on clarity, on using certain sort of tools to conceptualize and to build arguments. But this one talks about how uh, it's a theological research program that comes with a certain ambitions and stylistic stylistic prescriptions. I mean, that makes sense so far. Uh, but it's secondarily, which informs and sustains a certain intellectual culture that has its own literature, jargon, social networks, and affiliated substantive commitments. So I think this is important because it basically is saying that there's a sort of culture that analytic theologians are in, and it forces them to be bilingual to some extent, bilingual in theology and philosophy, where they're cross-pollinating, they're engaging in both both disciplines, and that's really shaping sort of some of the dispositions that they have. Uh, as they think about theology and think about the task. So they're really in two intellectual intellectual cultures at, at one time with the, the, the sort of virtues that each of them bring. Um, so I think those are decent definitions. If I'm honest, I mean, they're, they're all fine. and I, I'm good with them. I would probably just define analytic theology as theology that is thinking really hard with the use of the latest philosophy. Or you could just say philosophy in general. That's what analytic theology is doing, in my opinion. You know, I, when I, I use the adjective latest philosophy, just because oftentimes it is using analytic philosophy uh, in order to help clarify the tools. And there's a reason um, that it's analytic theology is today and not four centuries ago. Yes, they could be proto-analytic theologians, but just the terminology didn't really exist then. So it's a little bit anachronistic to apply that label to somebody who didn't even know that label existed. Though they may be doing theology in a way that you'd say, yes, that is analytic theology of what we think of today. That person's doing it uh, 10 centuries ago or or however many centuries ago. So you notice analytic philosophy is not necessary to do analytic theology. And neither is analytic theology something that's required to be a dogmatic theology. It's not required to be historical theology, though it can be those things. It's a research program. It's a. It's almost like a, a discipline, a school, a methodology of doing theology. Uh, and so you have all sorts of people, all sorts of different viewpoints doing analytic theology. You're going to find people across the range and spectrum, which shouldn't be surprising because if you look at systematic theologians, you have the same spectrum. You can have people as wide a range of theological commitments from Wayne Grudem to Janet Saskais to Thomas Joseph White to Jürgen Moltmann, all doing systematic theology, and they're all doing it very differently, but it's still properly labeled as systematic theology because of the methodology that they're applying to thinking about theology, and that's the same way with analytic theology. It's just primarily it's a a method. So... You ask me who might be the representative analytic theologians that I could think of and look to to give me a little bit of an example of what that looks like in a little more concrete sense. I would say if I had to do like a Mount Rushmore initially of those who are the greatest analytic theologians, you'd think of um, some precursors like Alvin Plantinga. I don't know if he would really want to call himself that. He's he's properly a philosopher, but he's doing analytic theology uh, sort of like in that first initial wave right before it becomes comes with that label. Uh, Nick Wolterstorff probably gets on there. Uh, Richard Swinburne definitely gets on that. Mount Rushmore, Tom Morris. I think Bill Alston does. He get, doesn't get the credit he deserves, but he should be on there. Uh, who else? Marilyn McCord Adams. 
Eleanor Stump. These are sort of like the figureheads. They are the ones who really generate this research program and get it off the ground. More contemporary uh, options would be people like Tim Paul, Greg Welty, J.T. Turner, Oliver Crisp, Billy Abraham. Now, I don't know if all of these figures would want to say, yes, I am properly so-called an analytic theologian. Like Greg Welty, I don't think he would say, I'm an analytic theologian properly speaking, but he's doing analytic theology. Other examples, I mean, you can't forget Tom McCall. I think he's awesome. Ross Inman, Paul Helm, uh, James Anderson, William Hasker. You've got a huge range of analytic theologians. Now, I do want to give you some resources on analytic theology, so I'll just mention three of them quickly. One of them is this brand new TNT Clark Handbook to Analytic Theology, and I think it's fabulous. It comes in paperback now, so I will link to that in the description below, which is much more affordable than the hardback version. So you have all sorts of essays in here. You have, I guess, how many parts in this? You've got one part on method and sources, and you've got Luke Stamps, Oliver Crispin here. You've got Doctrine of God, so you have Catherine Rogers, Ross Inman, uh, R.T. Mullins, Tom McCall, Person and Work of Christ, Tim Paul, William Lane Craig, James Anderson, Pneumatology, Adonis Vidu, Carl Mosser, Creation and Humans, Joshua Ferris, William Wood. Uh, you've, I mean, you've got a real um, range and experiences and practices. So Greg Satanto, James Arcadi, Joshua Cockaine, a, a huge range of authors and essays in here. I, I think that's really, really worthwhile if you want to understand analytic theology and understand how that theology shapes all the different, uh, I guess, dogmatic loci, or however you say that word, I would I would definitely go there. Another volume that I would recommend is this one, this Brill volume, uh, The Nature and Promise of Analytic Theology. It's only 92 pages, which is awesome uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, because it really gets to the meat of the argument and just explaining what is analytic theology. And then I think it's really unique in trying to position analytic theology as a form of declarative theology, and then it's positioning it as truly systematic theology. So it puts it in dialogue with uh, John Webster's theological theology and how does analytic theology fundamentally function in that way and others. So I, I really like this book. Uh, I think it's it's awesome. The only problem with it is it being Brill, it's like $100, so it's basically more than a dollar per page. So you'll have to take out a second mortgage on your house to pay for it. So I'm sorry. Hopefully there's a PDF or something. You have institutional access. Otherwise, it is a great volume. If you don't have the money for that, which I understand no one does, uh, I reviewed it. That's how I got it. I recommend this book. This is the one I always recommend to people who say, what is analytic theology? You know, that meme that's out there uh, from, I don't Parks and Rec. It's the Andy. He's like, you know, I basically, I, I'm too afraid to ask at this point, what is analytic theology? I feel like I get that quite, quite a bit. Um, so I tell them, read this book by Tom McCall. It's fantastic for several reasons. It, it covers the main topics that you want to know. What is analytic theology? It covers the main objections. And then it explains analytic theology and, and its relation to scripture, its relation to the history of doctrine, its relationship to the church and the world, and the relationship to the glory of God. And he gives lots of case studies. So let, let's just see this in practice. Let's see what it looks like to do analytic theology. So I really recommend this book by Tom McCall. I think it's fabulous, and it's very, very affordable. So you can go get it. This is published with IVP. Now, I do want to get to some questions and objections about analytic theology. I'm going to begin with questions, or no, not questions, objections. I'm going to begin with objections because I think that's going to clarify a little bit and explain what exactly analytic theology is. You'll get a little bit more understanding of it, and it will justify its use, I think. So um, if you have other 
if, if I don't cover all of the questions or if I don't cover all of the objections that you have, do drop a comment below. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to miss some. I'm only focusing on those that I hear most often. So there's one I know in this Tom McCall book where he basically says there's a, a legit objection. And this is just part of my own, I guess, the intellectual culture that I inhabit. Uh, this is not one that comes up very often, but people think analytic theology is like a Trojan horse to get conservative theology, some academic street cred in some way. And that's a legitimate objection from uh, other segments. A lot of the people that I interact with think analytic theology is like the opposite. So it's unique and interesting that that is an objection and it really is, but I don't have any interest in really working through that just because of you guys who I think are paying attention to me. Don't think that's an objection. So let's talk about the objections that probably most interest you. Uh, and I'm going to begin with the first one that I think is pretty common. And that is analytic theology is hostile to mystery or it denies mystery in some in some fashion. And I would say, no, analytic theology doesn't do that. That's false. It does not deny the place of mystery. It doesn't deny the use and validity of mystery. It just says you have to have, uh, I guess, reasons for actually re recoursing to mystery. You can't just begin working on a theological problem or a theological solution, and then you get to a really hard position, and you say, I don't know what to do with this. And then you just throw up your hands and say, mystery, or I'm going to play the analogy card or whatever card you play and say, yes, that, that gets, that's my get out of the jail free card. No, you have to actually meet certain conditions to say, yes, this is a reason or a location that you can use mystery. It's not an excuse to be lazy in your theology. It's not an excuse to be, to, to just avoid thinking really hard and trying to come up with solutions. So Tim Paul, he said some really nice things about mystery and its use in theology, which I find very, very useful. So he says this, while mystery may be apt for robustly positive accounts of the divine, it's insufficient for defending against negative charges of incoherence and contradiction. Mature thinking requires philosophical analysis. So I think that's really all the analytic theologian is saying is, look, mystery has its place. It has its role. Um, it's just not something you can just always use when you just don't know what to say or don't know what to do. You actually have to think hard, do the hard philosophical analysis. And if there's a point where I don't know how to positively, robustly explain the Trinitarian relations that it's mysterious in some way. That's great. That's fine. That's what we would expect when we come to understanding who God is. However, you can't just play mystery when you, whenever you feel like it. So that's the point. It's not denying mystery. It's just saying you can't always recourse to mystery because I think there's, there is a temptation to overuse that card and to, to cover sloppy thinking uh, when you get there. Another objection is analytic theology doesn't do history. And I'm afraid that that is something that it has infected all of theology. But even if it didn't, even if it didn't, let's just say it only infects analytic theology. I would tell you if that objection is to work, you would have to prove that every single analytic theologian by nature of being an analytic theologian is ignorant of history. You can't do that. Richard Cross, go Read his last book on the 17th century and Christology. Yeah, he's deep in history and is serious about it and knows his stuff better than any of us. Go read Marilyn McCord Adams, medieval philosopher, knows all what she's talking about. So no, that objection is not right. Maybe there are examples of analytic theologians that play fast and loose with history, don't know what they're talking about. Okay, 
There are lots of theologians that are like that too. doesn't mean theology in and of itself is bad because, or is not interested in history, but just because these people don't know about it. Another example, and this one's probably more common, analytic theology is not spiritually formative or it's not for the church. It doesn't have this like cash value. It's abstract. And I, I mean, I get it. I can understand it. You see a syllogism or you see all these logical symbols, modal logic or whatever, and you're like, wow, that's nothing to do with the church. But that's just not, not true. If analytic theology is just thinking really hard and using philosophy to assist you in that. I mean, the church has been practicing this for its entire existence. Look at the the, the councils of the early church, Nicaea, Chalcedon. I mean, intense abstract debate. Look at Cyril of Alexandria and how he's using philosophy and thinking about things. And wow, yeah, a justification for analytic theology in service of the church confessing the triune God. And let me give you some examples. So I think the discipline of analytic theology, not discipline, the research program, the the sort of the style and the way you have to go about thinking is serves things like prayer and meditation because it forces you and teaches you and develops habits of mind that generate the certain posture that you're able to focus and develop and think about God. So I think it develops all sorts of virtues. William Wood in this awesome essay, I'll drop that a link to it in the show notes, open access free. You can go read it in Journal of Analytic Theology talks about how it develops things like attention and transparency, charity, clarity, humility, all these virtues of the Christian faith. It's helping to develop them. So he says this about humility. He says to make a good analytic argument is to make that argument maximally easy for intellectual opponents to criticize or refute. So analytic theology is really good at doing that. And I think it develops a particular sort of humble disposition to realize I actually can be criticized and that's okay. I think that's one thing that people are a little bit shocked by in analytic theology and in philosophy in general is just the openness and the forthrightness to criticisms. It, I think it develops the right sort of Christian disposition and, and it has that uh, – by nature, it teaches you to be humble. It teaches you to be charitable to others. It teaches you to understand and to think about other people. Be open to reason like James 3 calls us to. The wisdom from above in James 3 says we are open to reason. I think analytic theology develops that sort of disposition uh, better and more often than some other forms of theology. It's not the only theology. I just want to be clear again. It's not the only you know, it's not the only thing, game in town, it, but it is a useful one and a good one. Tom McCall also talks about this. He says, the, uh, the concentrated attention required to read, understand, and develop very technical analytic arguments may be conducive to the kinds of intellectual virtues and habits of mind that are spiritually beneficial. I don't think it's just may. I think it absolutely is. Obviously, with all theology, you you have to have the right posture and you have to be regenerated, all the, that sort of stuff for it to actually be spiritually beneficial, yada, yada, yada. But I think it does. Now, other practical cash value, preaching. I think it provides the sort of habits of mind and thought that uh, parishioners need in your church so they can understand and digest your preaching because foggy preaching is going to serve no one. Uh, it You need clear and ordered preaching that is going to encourage thoughtful engagement. So I think it helps preaching. I think obviously it helps apologetics and defending the faith. Yeah, I think it's beneficial for the church. I think it develops spiritual formation. 
I think it's good stuff. Uh, another objection. Analytic theology denies the legitimacy and usefulness of story, metaphors, and narratives, etc. I think that's wrong. Analytic theology doesn't do that. It just says you need to understand what those are intended to do. And when you actually do use them like a metaphor, you have to explain what you mean by them. You're not allowed just to meander around in unclarity. You have to explain what you're talking about. So it's not saying don't ever use those, don't ever use story. It's just you have to know the intended purpose for it. And then you have to explain what you mean by it. Um, let's see here. Another objection. I think this is probably one of the more popular ones is that, uh, or maybe not more popular ones. It's just one of the more important ones. Analytic theology privileges the wrong thing. So it privileges the wrong people, the wrong sources, the wrong commitments. But let me remind you that this is not something that just happens in analytic theology. Theology in general, uh, can privilege the wrong things, it can come to the wrong conclusions. Idolatry is no respecter of ideologies, as Tom McCall reminds us. So let's think about what might be wrong with analytic theology. What might it prize improperly? Uh, clarity? I don't think anyone would say that. Uh, virtually all scholasticism and the Christian faith has said clarity is a good thing, um, except for weirdos. Sorry if you're a weirdo. Uh, let's be friends. You can be weird. That's cool. Um, maybe it privileges the wrong figures. But what's interesting about that sort of objection is that, you know, who I learned about Thomas Aquinas, about Anselm from, and was pushed to dive deeply into their thought as serious intellectual uh, intellectuals that I should take seriously and understand. Analytic theologians did that for me. So... That doesn't seem right. You know, who introduced me to the creeds and their value for, for theological construction and formation and as a guardrails for our theologizing? Analytic theologians. So I don't know if this objection really goes through. I think what might be at the bottom of this one is that analytic theology can't do theological theology. And I would say, no, that's not true. It's it's more that some don't do it. It's not that all don't do it or it's inherent in it. So I think really the real objection at the bottom of this is that analytic theology isn't dogmatic theology. It isn't committed by and large universally to upholding certain classical commitments. Okay, fine. But as you should know, analytic theology is a research program just like systematic theology, historical theology scholasticism and the like, it's a method. So yeah, there are no commitments baked in. So what? There are no commitments baked into being a theologian other than God exists. I mean, that's not a problem in and of itself. And I think this is an important point. If analytic th theology is bad because, well, look at example one or two that have bad theology for whatever reason, they're promoting it because of analytic theology. Well, let me read Scholasticism, same sort of methodology, same sort of approach. Uh, let me read Peter Abelard. Let me read William Vacham. Bad conclusions for classical thinkers. Does that then mean Scholasticism is bad? No, I don't think so. That, that's a silly argument. 
Another thing is analytic theology is actually full of classical defenders, full of them. I mean, I think what really is happening here is that people who are outsiders who don't aren't in the analytic theology culture, aren't reading the analytic theology literature, see a popular name, William Lane Craig, somebody like that, and say, look, William Lane Craig denies X classical doctrine, therefore all of analytic theology is bad. It's inherently bad. And they make all sorts of projections about everybody in analytic theology. There's this fear of the unknown. But that's a bad argument. I can give you a list of 25 people off the top of my head right away saying these are people who want to defend classical theology, who have defended classical theology in monographs and journal articles all over in analytic theology. What are you going to do with that? Go look at Jeff Brower defending divine simplicity a decade plus ago in analytic theology. Go look at Tim Paul's defense of conciliar Christology, two monographs on that read them. I think what happens is people just don't read it. They get scared because they see some popular name and assume everybody's bad, but that's just, that's not an appropriate disposition for understanding theology, doing theology, or treating other people uh, and uh, hoping and believing the best about others. It's not a properly Christian disposition, I don't think. So I'd say, please just read the theology. Where's that Bernie Sanders meme? Just, I'm asking you again to actually read analytic theology. Don't just read one source and don't make bad arguments about it. Don't just assume everybody's bad because two or three people are bad or, and they're not even bad, but I'm not going to get into that. Okay. Let's, let's, let's talk about some questions about analytic theology. I think people ask, what's the difference between analytic theology and scholasticism? So we've talked about this a little bit. McCall says the rebirth of analytic theology can be thought of as sort of like scholasticism 2.0 in a sense. Um, I think he's right in this. So scholasticism is primarily method of theology, 13th, 14th, 15th, et cetera, centuries in the schools, a certain sort of format. There's no dogmatic commitment to be a scholastic. You have Occam and Scotus and, and Bonaventure and Aquinas, all scholastics. Henry of Ghent have different theological conclusions. Doesn't mean they're not scholastics. It's about a method. Same thing. Analytic theology is about a method doing the same sort of method, just utilizing a modern uh, sense of philosophy, I guess, analytic philosophy and saying, hey, there's some resources here. But even then, they're using old philosophical resources, repackaging them as new neo-Aristotelianism, et cetera. So what's fascinating to me about this question is that a lot of the, um, I guess, popular-level reform thinkers today who are realizing that there is value in scholasticism, rightly so. They've read Richard Muller. They realize a lot of these caricatures of scholasticism as a boogeyman are false and wrong and that our reformed heroes actually found great value in scholasticism. They see this, but then they go make those same silly, um, unfounded claims against analytic theology, saying it's this dry, arid method that's not for the church because of this its methodology, and it, it leads to false conclusions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Stop it. If you say this it, about analytic theology, you're giving up scholasticism. scholasticism. It, it's it's really silly. So it, in a sense, analytic theology is just, just scholasticism for today. 
I'm not going to get on a rant for this. I want this to be positive sort of content here for you guys, up building. Ask, I want to ask questions and stuff. And I'm not afraid to, to be honest and tell you what I think, but I, I don't want to be a total jerk and just tear down people. I think that's what oftentimes happens on YouTube, and I don't want to be that guy. I want to be up building, creating useful content to think and to understand. Another question, does someone need to know they're doing analytic theology to actually be doing it? And I would say probably yes, but not necessarily the case. Examples, can you stumble into algebra not knowing you're doing it, but doing it? Yes, I think you can. Probably not like super frequent, but you can. Can you stumble into performing the Sixth Symphony uh, and not know you're doing it? I guess Probably not. Can you stumble into grilling a great steak? I think, yeah, sometimes you can. So in the similar way, analytic theology, can you stumble into doing it? Yes, you can. I guess it's just not super uh, common, but it's definitely possible, especially with, say, you're a high-powered theologian and you just aren't familiar with philosophy and you pull these resources, you don't even know that you're doing it and you could be doing it. Another question, what's the difference between systematic theology and analytic theology? Not a ton. Uh, Look at Billy Abraham's quote again. It's systematic theology attuned to the skills, resources, and virtues of analytic philosophy. So it is systematic theology. Systematic theology is like that big, broad bucket, whereas analytic theology is a slice of that uh, bucket. It's a sub-segment, so to speak, of systematic theology just a particular mode of doing it. Another question, does everyone need to do analytic theology? Absolutely not. The task of theology is one that we need the whole body of Christ to do well. We need historians. We need true proper theologians. We need analytic theologians. We need philosophers. We need exegetes. We need all of it to do theology well. So no, not everyone should be uh, an analytic theologian. Not everyone should want to be an analytic theologian, but we should all link arms, cheer each other on and move forward together in this project of theology to serve our worship and understanding of God. So I absolutely think we all need each other and it's a analytic theology should not be looked down upon. It should not be looked on with suspicion. It should be looked on with, this is a tremendous resource to serve our understanding and confession of who God is. So that's that for analytic theology. If you have questions that I didn't address, you have comments, you have thoughts, you have concerns, you have objections, you have whatever, drop them in the comments below. I'll do another video if there's enough of them. Hopefully this was useful. Really, I wanted to start doing these primarily because Protestants need more intellectual robustness. They need me encouragement to think seriously and carefully about things just doesn't happen all the time. And YouTube is barren for Protestants doing that, particularly Baptists, uh, pun intended, I guess. Baptists, for whatever reason, have thought of like virtues as things not related to the intellectual life. Uh, Knowledge is a vice in a lot of sense, in a lot of Baptist contexts. I say, no, 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 that doesn't have to be the case. Baptists, you can think seriously. You can think really hard. You can think robustly. So I want to create a center, a place to say, let's think seriously together and let's move together and understand things together. So I'm excited what's to come with these, with these videos. Hopefully you are too. So if you are, go ahead again, like the video, share it with your friends. Tell me what you want to talk about next. I'm excited about what we have to come. Talk to you guys soon. Let's think together. You.
how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.